We have now released issue three of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Emmy Vadness, co-host with Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is war and inner peace. My guest is James McLennan, who is a researcher, former sociology professor, licensed clinical social worker, and civil engineer. He has been interviewed many times on New Thinking Aloud. James is author of four books, Deviant Science, The Case of Parapsychology, Wondrous Events, Foundations of Religious Belief, Wondrous Healing, Shamanism, Human Evolution, and the Origin of Religion, and The Entity Letters, A Sociologist on the Trail of a Supernatural Mystery. He is co-author with Mohammed Kodayari Far of an Iranian and American veteran exchange stories and discuss inner peace. We were 13. James is located in Chesapeake, Virginia. Now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Jim. It's a pleasure to have you back with us on New Thinking Aloud today. Thank you. How did you connect with your co-author, Mohammed? Kodayari Far, and begin discussing your own wars you had been involved with and solutions for inner peace. I was a Vietnam War veteran, and it was a, it was a difficult situation because I came to realize that my country had no understanding, had very, very little understanding of Vietnamese and Vietnamese culture, and yet here they went to war and and it didn't work out very well because of that failure to understand their enemy. And so I got a chance to go to a conference in Tehran, Iran in 2006 uh, because of my, my connection to sociology of religion. So it was a conference about religion and science in Iran. I, I was invited to present at this conference. So I went in 2006 and that's where I met Mohammed Kodayari Fard. And he was, uh, he was a, Chairman of the Department of Psychology at the University of Tehran, we just hit it off. And uh, we decided we'd do research together about childhood psychopathology. That was his area of expertise. We ended up publishing two journal articles. We came to realize that we were both war veterans. And one of the editors of the articles wanted us to write about that. So we started telling each other our stories. And this is very unusual for me because I had never, I, I had not talked with anyone about my experiences in Vietnam. It's just so, so strange and off the scale, a very, very uh, difficult year that I spent there in Vietnam. So we started talking our about our stories and, and ended up writing this uh, self-help book for uh, treating depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorders, and things like that. So uh, I learned about him and I learned about the Iran-Iraq war, which went, it started in 1980, went to 1988. And uh, it was just astonishing. And I learned about Mohammed's life. He had, he had attended any Shah meetings. The Shah had been in the power, in power in the 1970s. And he, like all Iranians, he had joined the army to serve his time, that was, which was required. And while he was in the army, he had been arrested for attending these anti-Shah meetings and tortured severely in Irwin prison. And he had had a religious, kind of a religious revelations. And eventually they released him and he came to the United States and communicated with various uh, uh, anti-Shah Iranians. Uh, for example, Mustafa Shamram, who was a famous uh, op opponent of the, of the Shah in the United States. 
And so he took part in the demonstrations and the Shah was overthrown. And in 1980, and he was, he was invited actually to become a newspaper correspondent or a reporter with a, with a government publication after the Shah was overthrown because he was recognized as one of the original people who, who had been working to overthrow the Shah. And so they, they actually sent him to, for commando training because he had the desire to martyr himself. And so he, he was tr in training to go to perhaps to Lebanon or to, uh, Palestine or, uh, you know, someplace where that might be the requirement. In 1980, Iraq invaded and Dr. Shamran contacted him and wanted him to organize a, a some kind of guerrilla unit because the, the Iranian army wasn't able to perform. They were unable to resist the, the Iraqi invasion. So they were going to assemble volunteers to fight against the Iraqis. And so he put together a commando team and went to the front in 1980. And that was his war experience. They, they took part in the liberation of, uh, Susan Guard. I don't know whether I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly, but in the, in the, in the western part of Iran and major, uh, tank battles, and then he was wounded, wounded, and had to go back to a Tehran to recover. And then he took part in uh, some of the naval campaigns, trying to alleviate the naval blockade, and then went back and fought in uh, uh, Iranian Kurdistan. Extensive combat experience, and of the 13 men that he assembled, he was the only survivor. Every single one of them was martyred. So it was a a very profound story. And my story was, uh, I was a lieutenant. I went into the army. We were required to go in the army those days. There was a draft. So I, I was, went in and became a lieutenant in 1970, 1971. I was in Vietnam. And my experience was not at all satisfactory. The, the whole situation was deteriorating. And I was a advisor to a Vietnamese, South Vietnamese combat engineer battalions. And they didn't have adequate equipment. They didn't have adequate motivation. Nothing really was working very well. So we were, we would exchange these stories. And I, I came to realize that religion was a, a central feature. So I think if, if we're going to, if we're going to listen to Muhammad, we have to understand the history of Islam. Okay. And I just quiz you. What, what do you know about Islam? It's a religion and the people are called Muslim and essentially they study and read from the Quran. And I really notice a lot of similarities about how God is light and a lot of, you mentioned a lot of similarities even with Christianity in your book. There's parallel features and uh, that uh, well, let's just go over the fundamental history. So Muhammad in 19, in, in 610 AD had these visions. Okay. They, the archangel Gabriel brought these visions to him and he could, he began reciting this incredible poem. It was poetry. He began reciting and the, it had, a, it had a strangely beautiful quality and that attracted people's attention. So they wrote down these recitations and that became the Quran. And so the, the, the belief was this is the direct word of God. So the Quran is central to Islam. It's the word of God. And, and unlike Christianity, where it's written down hundreds of years after the fact, these things were written down while Muhammad was alive. Now he died in 632. And then the question was, who would be his replacement? Who would be the next caliph? Okay. And the decision was made that a leader in a major tribal group would become the next caliph. But there was a, a lot of people who felt that uh, Muhammad's son-in-law, Ali, should be the next caliph, and he wasn't. So that caused a little bit of friction. So there were three caliphs, and then Ali finally became the fourth caliph in this disciplic secession. And after, and, and they, many of them were assassinated, and, and Ali was assassinated, okay, in 632. And so rather than his son becoming the caliph, they appointed this other man, uh, to be caliph. And, and there was a, that was the beginning of a kind of division. So Ali's son, his a second son, Hussein, put together an army of 70 some men and he was traveling around trying to gather new troops. 
And Yazid, the caliph, sent a large, much larger army, thousands of men, and they confronted him, and they, uh, uh, Hussein refused to negotiate, and they had a battle, and all of them were killed. They, they gave up their life for truth and justice, you know, and that, that stimulated a division with Islam, beginning what's a sect or a group known as Shiites, the Shia, Shiite Muslims. And that's, that's the beginning of the division. So today, 10% of all Muslims are Shiite, 90% are Sunnis. Okay. And Iran is a, is predominantly Shiite. About 90% of the people in Iran are Shiite Muslims. And so, that's something that's a core feature, that way of thinking, the idea that it's the right thing to do to give up your life for your belief, for the, for, for the right thing, for justice. And so, uh, uh, Mustafa Sharman, who recruited Muhammad, ha had a kind of a religious idea that when you go into battle, you should go with the expectation of being martyred. That's the right way to do that. That enhances your ability to, to accomplish your mission. So, Muhammad's a very religious Shiite Muslim, and that's core to his life. And I came to realize how positive that could be. What, what is the core? What's the major, what's the major thing that the Quran says? It stresses that God is one. There's a oneness to God. There's, and that after your death, you'll be judged by Allah. Okay. So your, your behavior, you, you have to be, you're responsible for your behavior and, and accepting the idea that Muhammad is God's prophet and that God is one. So we began exchanging these stories and his stories were, uh, way outside of normality. Uh, all these men were eventually died as martyrs. And he was the only survivor. And then it didn't even end there. Then he made new friends and then they also were martyred. So it's a very, very difficult story. Uh, when they arrived at the front with his team, almost the first day, one of them was killed by mortar fire. And so then there's a lot of grief involved. Each, each one was deeply grieved by the men, by the others. It isn't like they don't have grief in Islam. That's not the case. Uh, deep, deep levels of grief and uh, strange uh, difficulties. Now, he recruited a bunch of his newspaper reporter colleagues, and so they had their cameras with them when they went into combat. I couldn't believe that when I was hearing these stories. And so in, in this book that I have, uh, this cover has one of his photographs. Uh, there, these are These are the team, except for the missing men who's already been martyred. And there's even photographs of uh, them firing their mortars at the enemy and the explosions that resulted from the observer team. You can see that in the photographs. And the, there's even a photograph of them. They escaped the first day and got into some brush and they got away from the enemy. And this battle of Karbala, this, you know, this battle which started Shiite Islam, there's kind of a recreation. They, they could have surrendered. They, they were actually over a, a, a far superior force thought that they had captured them, but they didn't, they refused to surrender. They just started firing and they escaped unharmed. So, uh, it's, a, it's astonishing some of the things that happened, but that very first day, they didn't have any, any tank weapons. And there were many, many Iraqi tanks and the, the buildings were being destroyed. And it was a very, very difficult uh, fight. So he, Mohammed realized they need to bring out their anti-tank weapons. And they had these, uh, what's called dragon missiles. Their, uh, their weapons, American weapons that had been left over, you know, that the Shah had bought these weapons. And so they, he, he wanted to have a class to teach his, his team how to fire these dragon missiles, anti-tank missiles, because they're very dangerous to, to fire. There's a, there's a firing sequence where you have to, you assemble the missile, you put it on your shoulder, you, uh, look through the target, crosshairs, you, you aim that at what you want to hit, you pull the trigger, you wait, the battery needs to warm up, then the missile fires, and there's a, it doesn't have any feedback, but you can feel it going because the weight Removed. So some people will flinch and that'll make it miss. So you got to learn how to be calm, you know, stable. 
then you, you watch, you got to keep it the cross, keep it on the crosshairs and then it'll hit whatever it's aimed at. It self directs itself as it flies through the air. You know, it's, it has a wire uh, guidance system. And so he, he went through all these stages teaching these men how to fire this missile. And he'd been trained at this, uh, through his commander training in the past that they'd always use dummy launchers. So it just happened that he had a, a real missile and he pulled the trigger and he realized he had just launched the sequence. And so now he had to wait <laughs> and it didn't go off. He, all of them would have been killed because they fired his missile. On a, so here's your first miracle. So what's, what can we learn? God is great. You know, that, that, what, that's what he takes it. It was, it's, it, it's an inexplicable phenomena. So they, they, they didn't encounter any tanks for the next few days or next few weeks after that, but there was a time where they did locate a large number of tanks and they took this missile and he went out with uh, members of his team and they got, they saw this uh, hundreds, so many, so many tanks and, uh, he said, okay, now I'm going to creep up. And, but the other men, they didn't want to go because it's just like suicide. And uh, one of his uh, colleagues, uh, brothers went with him. So they, they crawled with his missile and went, walked on. There's kind of a berm. And, uh, you know, he, the guy said, now we can't leave this, this, uh, canal path because there'll be missile, there'll be mines out there. I said, oh no, we have to get closer. So he, he, he left his colleague back and he crawls closer, closer, gets around 300 feet, sets up his, uh, you know, assembles his dragon missile, looks at the crosshairs, looks at the tank, puts it on his shoulder, pulls the trigger, feels the missile go. But then he wanted to see, he wanted to actually see it. So he looks up. And of course, he, what, he wasn't aiming at correctly. It landed in front of the tank, tank. There's this huge explosion. And then all the Iraqis came out and they started firing their rifles at him, you know, because they could see him out there. It's a big open field. And he's crawling as fast as he can. Bullets are flying around. Then they start firing their mortars at him and all the mortars start landing around. Dirt's flying all over. Then they start shooting the tanks at him. Their tank shells are exploding. And he realizes that he cannot survive this. You know, he's failed. He doesn't have a second missile. He can't fire anything else. And he kind of has a, a religious experience. He just freezes and this explodes. Eventually they get tired of shooting. I guess they couldn't see him. I don't know. But then when he starts crawling again, they, they see him. So then they start shooting again, all the missiles. So this goes on and on, maybe half an hour, an hour. Finally, he, re he sees a tree off in the distance. If I can only reach this tree, I'll survive. He reaches the tree and there's this colleague there. And the guy says, you lived, you know, you may, you missed, but you, we can do this again. You know, we can do this. And so that was the second dragon missile story. And they got these uh, motorcycle guys. Uh, Dr. Shamra had recruited these urban motorcycle gang guys, I guess what they were. I don't know. They weren't religious at all. And they were, they were going to be teamed up with his commando team and they were going to ride on the back. Well, each one would ride on the back of a motorcycle. They get close to the enemy. Then they do all the crawling, get closer, closer, shoot at the enemy, then run away, jump on the motor and off they go. So they, they complained to Dr. Shemmer because these guys weren't religious at all. They smoked tobacco, they drank alcohol, they cursed, they didn't pray. They said, we, we're here to, to be martyrs, you know, we're here on sacred. We don't, we don't want to be this. We don't want to be associated with these guys. But Dr. Shemmer said, you're just going to have to put up with it, you know. So they got to know them and they got to trust the guys were pretty brave. So they take the dragon missile, they go off on the motorcycles. Oh, oh one of the guys, Mohammed's uh, colleague, you know, his, the guy he rode with asked him about praying. He said, why do you pray five times a day? And Muhammad said, well, we, we're not, we're not demanding anything from God. The, the prayer is beneficial for the one who prays. So that's why we pray. As the theology on the, this level is simple. You know, there's one God and you pray to that one God. It'll benefit you. Well, anyway, they go off and, uh, this is his big chance. He crawls, he crawls, he crawls. Uh, he assembles his dragon missile, you know, puts it on his shoulder, looks through the crosshairs. There's a tank, pull the trigger, 
wait, 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 flies, watch, keep it on the crosshairs, tank blows up, you know. And all the shooting and everything starts, all the buddies out, they're all shooting at him again. He does the crawling. Uh, he's actually with his uh, best friend, and uh, they run across the field. The explosion knocks them to the ground. They know they have to start crawling, crawling, crawling. They make it back. They get on the motorcycle. Off they go. They got away, you know, successful. But, but apparently the Iraqis had uh, programmed the mortars for some particular point on the road. And when they saw the motorcycles hit that point, a shell landed right between them. And one of the motorcycle guys got hit with shrap shrapnel in the stomach. And uh, uh, he was put in the hospital and he died three days later. So there's more of this grief. But the other motorcycle guy came to Muhammad and said, okay, show me how to pray, you know. And Muhammad said, just sit beside me, do what I do. And you don't, you don't have to, you don't have to believe, just do it, you know. And so he started doing it and the other motorcycle guys started, uh, came along. They started praying too. So it's a story, the dragon story. And, uh, it shows you can, you know, if you pay attention to life, you can improve. You can, uh, if you, if you have a self-help program, you can be happier. You, know, you can be holier. You can, you can follow a spiritual path. There's, there's a message in our story. And, uh, it, the message that I'm, that we're teaching in our book kind of coincides with science that we know physiologically that if you're exposed to traumatic experiences, your memories are going to be deeply connected to your emotions. And those emotions are going to interfere with the rational part of your brain, you know, uh, processing that memory. The memory is not being processed rationally. It's so deeply connected to the emotion. So a lot of therapy involves is somehow using bringing rationality to processing your memories. If you can process the memory. So that, that led me, when I came back from Vietnam, I, I, it was difficult for me to cope with my experiences. But, and, and so I began well, with this book project, we're doing a writing to heal exercise in a way. So I'm doing a writing and heal exercise by writing this book. So that's what we're advocating. One of our self-help ideas is writing to heal. If you can, if you can rationally deal with your memory, it, you'll be better off and you can be happier. And it, it's not just a matter of post-traumatic stress disorder. All people can benefit from this, these kind of exercises. The exercises will work for you. You know, you don't need to, you don't need to be have a, psychopathology or anything like you can you can become happier so i'll i'll share one of my stories i went when i first got to vietnam i was in the, with the combat engineers with the, i was attached to the south vietnamese unit and they sent me out to live with the south vietnamese unit in this kenwa province and it was a very heavily infestation infested with enemy troops Viet Cong. we called their guerrilla troops and every day was like a mess. The road was, we're, we're trying to repair this dirt roads and mud's everywhere. The rain falls every day. It's really hot. There's leeches. There's mosquitoes. The children are wounded by mortar fire. A woman gets her foot blown off. A guy gets shot by a sniper and our unit. You know, we're out, we're working on the road and they, they would come and shoot. And then we'd have these big firefights. Everyone's shooting, shooting the mortars. Just, you can't sleep in that kind of environment. I couldn't sleep. I got amoebic dysentery. I got some kind of skin disease. The food was awful. Well, I, I tried to use chopsticks, you know, to eat. I couldn't get enough to eat. It was just absolutely weird. And that, and every week I would have a chance to go to be with Americans at this team house at this village. We, we lived in these teams, advisory teams. So there were five Americans living in this concrete bunker. And I just loved, I love that bunker because there's nice concrete, you know, but they didn't like it. They were, they got mortared every week. The children who were playing in front got injured. And, uh, but it, just to get to this place where we're putting our life in the, in, you know, risking your life to just to go and take a shower, you know, and eat American food. So every week I go in and this one week, our jeep got stuck in the mud and we were trapped and the nightfall is coming. And that was pretty much, uh, you know, curtains. If you're caught out in the darkness without any support, the Viet Cong will find you and your life is over. And so this, my Lieutenant Min, I, I call this guy in the book, 
he says, well, let's just walk down the road. We walk down the road. And there's a, like a hole in the wall kind of bar restaurant place. He says, well, come on, let's get drunk. <laughs> Actually, what, his English wasn't good enough to say that, but I could figure out what he wanted to do, you know. Uh, my, my Vietnamese was so poor. All I could do is ask about people's families. So you know, how's your mother? How's your brother? How's your sister? Like that. And beer. So we went in and we got drunk, you know, and some helicopter came flying down the road. I thought we were going to get saved. So I ran out. Uh, oh, it's gone, you know. Okay. We're not saved after all. Nighttime's falling and, uh, Men couldn't even talk clear. He was so drunk. But sure enough, a grader came down the road and saved us or pulled out the Jeep. And half an hour later, I'm safe. I'm at the team house. And they told me that the general had flown down a road to the general, the American general had flown down a road and it looked really, really good. And he felt the general felt that I had been doing this really good job. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we had accomplished nothing that the whole time I was there in that, in that province, we had accomplished absolutely nothing. It was just a terrible mess. But it shows you, you know, like there's you can see people who are looking from far above, they can't really see what's going on. I think that was part of the problem with the whole American endeavor. The American people didn't understand it. The American generals didn't understand it very well. It was a, a difficult environment, difficult mess. While you were in Vietnam, you were there in 1970, 1971 to help build and repair roads. Roads, bridges, and dependent housing. During that time, you describe how you weren't able to get the supplies you needed. Uh, it was very hot. It would rain a lot. And so you weren't able to actually do a lot of the work. And that you described how it felt really futile. And you frequently used the word that you said it felt like it was stupid. Everything was just sort of yeah. stupid. <laughs> yes, yes. Absolutely useless absolutely meaningless and useless and the viet my, the, the the troops the vietnamese troops had that realization they they felt that it was useless they weren't motivated but there was no the whole economy was destroyed by the american uh, intervention in the warfare so uh, they, they they weren't they couldn't make the, the south vietnamese troops weren't making enough money to support their families so they had to engage in some kind of corruption there had to be some kind of if they were going to support themselves, they had to steal property and sell it on the black market is how they would survive. Yeah. And so you started becoming depressed uh, and you were very sick a lot of the time while you were there. Maybe dysentery. Yeah. 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 And lost a huge amount of weight. And uh, because, uh, oh, it was it's tough to see someone, uh, uh, it's tough to see a woman get her foot blown off and then no helicopter comes, no, no medical aid for hour after hour after hour, you know, at uh, pain and children injured, killed, blown up and people, uh, killed by snipers and, uh, landmines and, uh, trip wires, stuff like that. And uh, nothing. We, we we had no rock. The rock we couldn't get rock for the road, so we couldn't really do what we were doing. The bridges would be blown. We couldn't really repair the bridges. Didn't have enough. We had to cross build a bridge, but the bridge wasn't long enough. You know, so they, there wasn't really a good way of doing. It was it was, there was a deep absurdity about it, futility, and yet the Americans. We're being told that we're going to Vietnamese. This is Vietnamization. The Vietnamese are going to take over the war, but that was just inconceivable. It was absolutely impossible. And it just went, the war went on for years and years and years with that mythology. You know, stupid, but it seems to be normal for human beings to accept uh, lies, you know, to, to have, engage in kind of false thinking. In fact, we do it. We, that's part of a, our self help strategy is coming to realize the kinds of flaws in our own thinking about ourselves. Some people probably listening to this could benefit from cognitive behavioral therapy. Your, your self-talk is self-defeating. And so if you could just eliminate that self-defeating talk, you'd be better off. Mm -hmm. Well, so but Muhammad, his stories all are very meaningful, you know. So he, he describes they have a situation where they need to get the army across this river but the 
but the uh, Iraqis controlled the river seemingly completely. But his commando team was able to find one place on the river where the Iraqis couldn't see them. And so they snuck in there and they built this pontoon bridge. And so that's the, the cover of our book is them, his team crossing the bridge. And then we have, they had a big feast on the bridge. And then they brought all the, the, uh, Jeep after Jeep filled full of men and they were able to liberate the next city. It was a big success, you know, but my story, my counter story is another one of these. Oh, just so off the scale weird. Uh, they, they wanted me to go to this mountain, a particular mountain, which the South Vietnamese were going to hold and, and put a artillery piece on the top of this mountain in the fire base. The mountain's name was Nui Kham. And it was a center of a, of a kind of a religious sect, the Wahals. A meditator had gone to this mountain and had all these magical experiences and had done miracles afterwards. And the emperor, uh, of the, the founder of the Viet, early Vietnamese empire had, had hidden there for a while. So it's called a forbidden mountain because people were forbidden to go there, a forbidden mountain. And it, it had a, I arrived there and the, the, the vegetation on the top had been blasted off and they had trenches and it was just all mud and the trenches were filled with water and the troops were having, trying to sleep in these trenches. And every night the Viet Cong were getting up close and they were shooting at them. And, uh, it was an unlivable condition, but I, I shared a tent with this a Vietnamese a major. Major Than, I, I name him in the book. And he's a, he's a kind of a mafia figure. They had some kind of a criminal enterprise and they had whorehouses for the Americans and they had black market activities and everyone was very deeply afraid of him. And I, he, he had not talked to me much because I was just a lieutenant, you know, but here I was living with him and he began opening up with me and told me that he had been sent to this fire base because they wanted him, they wanted to assassinate him as some kind of colleague was against him and that they weren't giving him enough ammunition that they couldn't defend themselves if they were attacked. And so that was what we should expect would happen. They would be overrun and we would all lose our lives. So, you know, that wasn't my idea of a good time. And I, I didn't know how to react to this idea. I, I unlike Mohammed, I wasn't planning on martyring myself, but I knew I was sick all the time. Uh, but I, I said, well, we need to have some kind of plan. He said, okay, with, if the, if the uh, Viet Cong get close to our lines, I'll have the troops fire three shots and then we'll all know that they're out there so we can get ready. So from that night on, sometime in the mic, we'd hear these three shots and have to chamber right up. Round in your rifle, you know, and get all ready, you know, but, but kind of disrupts your sleep and it just night after night and uh, people getting sick, people uh, triggering uh, minds, getting blown up, uh, just inconceivably awful situation. But the major had this tea table that he kept between our two cots. He had this tea table. It was like an antique tea table. And that was his connection to civilization. And he told me that tea table was helped him stay sane, you know. And, and so every afternoon and every morning we would have tea and sit beside this tea table. And I thought, Oh, that's okay. You know, I'll do my best. Maybe I can stay sane. Well, the, the, our engineers hit rock. We're, we're supposed to be building these bunkers and, uh, there's a picture you can see the troops standing on a bunker, you know, we're building these bunkers. They're going to have firing ports and they're going to, the troops are going to be living inside these bunkers. And, uh, but we hit rock and so we had to blast the rock out with dynamite and, and other uh, munitions, but it would throw rock up in the air and uh, these fist side rocks would come falling down. And so everyone, everyone have to get inside our foxholes, you know, and you get your helmet on and try and survive just blasting this rain of rock. So we, we did one of these blasting exercises and I got out. I wanted to see if we'd had any casualties. And I looked over at our tent and the, the so a rock, this huge rock. I, I can't, there's not room for me to demonstrate how big it was. It was like maybe three feet long and over a hundred pounds. And it had crashed through the ceiling of the tent and crushed his tea table. And I thought that's, I, was, is it, I thought 
did someone do this? Like, it's not possible for that explosion to launch that rock. Maybe the, maybe the major had some kind of enemy, but how could they have hurled the rock down to the top? Because it, well, one man couldn't hold the rock and two men couldn't throw the rock. It, it seemed like impossible. And I, I thought maybe this is like a poltergeist phenomenon. Like, it's inexplicable, you know. And, and also, this is kind of an omen of some sort. You know, something bad's going to happen to the major, you would think. And the major realized it, too. He he asked me, what could I do? Could I help him get out? You know, could I get? But I, I said, you're the guy that's got the money. Can't you pull strings somewhere? I mean, it's an unsolvable situation. Well, the next day, the uh, Vietnamese general came, okay? And they had a big meeting. I, w I wasn't allowed to attend that. And they decided they weren't going to build these bunkers after all. Okay. What? You know, like, where's the troops going to sleep? Well, that's their problem. He said, not only that, but they're going to transfer him back to his unit and everything was going to be okay. So I learned, I learned later that they had made some kind of deal and they're going to sell all the lumber on the black market. And that's the, that was the deal. That's the kind of corruption that was going on in those days. The, the government was corrupt and the military was corrupt. And so now the troops are going to sleep out in the rain. They're not going to have all the bunkers after all. It just seemed just so futile. Everything just so futile. And, uh, uh, uh but we still had to load these. I, I had the job of helping. I was the only one that could speak English, you know, so I get on the radio and help guide the helicopter pilots so they could, deliver this lumber to different places in the right place so we could build these bunkers. So another delivery is coming. The helicopter pilot said, what's this? There's guys in black pajamas on the hill next to yours. Do you, are they yours? No, they're not. Those are Viet Cong, you know. So we called down. We wanted to call in artillery on these guys, on the Viet Cong. But the South Vietnamese couldn't get their artillery piece together, you know. They couldn't, they couldn't launch a, a shell. They just didn't have the right personnel at that time. So that was my life. And I had this strange compulsion to go to the northern part of the perimeter. I was supposed to go to the north. And I knew there's nothing happening there. And I, I thought I could do it. But suppose someone asked me, why am I going there? I wouldn't have an explanation. But then the whole thing was so absurd. I figured I'll just go anywhere. So I'm walking to the northern, you know walking along, going, there's no one out there. And I hear uh, the shell, the, the artillery piece down the valley, it, it launches the shell. And I thought, wow, they're finally going to fire on the Viet Cong. It's like hours afterwards. This is absurd. And I'm walking along, and then I notice the shell is coming towards the, our position, you know. And it, it does. It lands in front of me, you know. Not 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 right on me, you know, but in front of me. And it throws shrap shrapnel, and my hearing is no, no more, you know, I have no more hearing. And the shrapnel's all over, but it, I was totally okay. It's just the most astonishing thing. So I figured, well, I'll pick up one of these, a piece of shrapnel for a souvenir, you know. But I, I'm a fool. I mean, I, I'm not a combat veteran very much of one, you know. That's a stupid thing to do. It turned out it was really hot. I burnt my fingers and I cut my finger really badly, you know, threw it down. Oh my gosh, I'm bleeding all over the place. I've injured myself. You know, it's like they, we have met the enemy and he is us, you know, like it's my own, it's my South Vietnamese shell and I injured myself, you know, but I go back in the town, finally able to stop the bleeding. The major comes, but I don't know what he said. I can't hear. You know, it, it finally catches up to me. Now I've got these hearing aids, you know. I'm finally, my hearing returned after about 12 hours, you know. <laughs> it's just so absurd. It's like some kind of haunted situation on this mountain. And then a few days later, we, this the uh, uh, Chinook helicopter came and delivered a Jeep. They brought this Jeep, an American Jeep. And I thought, this is so absurd. It can't, just nowhere it can drive. But it turns out they want this Jeep for uh, the battery to use the, electricity from the battery for communication purposes. Well, we launched another explosion and a rock about half the size that landed right on top of this Jeep. And it was like, you know, it wasn't as miraculous, the fact that it was launched, but it was probably about a 50-pound rock. You know, it can't, it's not really explicable. But I thought maybe that was for me. It was sending a message to me of some sort. You know, and I, I think there's probably people watching this, and there's a lot of people had paranormal experiences. What does it mean? You know, like, I think it's saying that it's there and we 
have to come up with an interpretation for it of some sort. What do you feel these events were about for you? Well, to tell you the truth, at the time, I was so overwhelmed by the situation that I couldn't really think about that because we had uh, the Viet Cong coming every night. We had thought we were going to be overrun. Uh, there wasn't time to think about it, you know. And I didn't. And when I got back from Vietnam, I didn't think about it either. It's only in retrospect when I'm writing about these stories. You know, I'm writing about these stories, and I'm realizing that that seemed to be a forerunner to my whole life. I've devoted my life to psychical research and written about it. And that was my that was my first real contact with that type of thing. And I I don't know how to interpret it, but it's it's not. You know, people like to use a religious interpretation, but it's obvious it happens all over the world. It's not a particular religion causes these things to happen. It isn't like we were believing in it, but it happened. You know, it's, a, it's an inexplicable, inexplicable phenomena. Mm-hmm. We have these inexplicable things, and it seems like it's a connection to the unknown, to some kind of realm which we don't know about. And then it seems to be, uh, it happens to certain particular people. And I suspect there's a pretty high percentage of people who are listening to this who have these, have had these kinds of experiences. So in my own research, I've investigated that kind of thing. And about 50% of the American population has a story to tell, you know, anomalous experience, a precognitive dream or poltergeist event or haunting event or extrasensory, waking extrasensory perception or out-of-body experience. So we have these experiences, and we seem to have fashioned uh, religious explanations for them. their spirits and life after death, magical abilities. Is there more you want to say about that for, for you as far as how this set the tone in your life? For example, when you came back from Vietnam, you mentioned that you were very depressed. You had a hard time adjusting back to American life and actually left America. Well, yes. When I came back, I, I realized that the experience I had, that no one would really understand that. And if I ever took part in a conversation about Vietnam, I would have these terrible nightmares afterwards. And I was disgusted with the materialistic nature of American society and the absurdity. You know, 3,000, 3 million Vietnamese died in that war, and it's not necessary. Nothing was accomplished. Our inter- the American intervention did not accomplish anything, benefit to America, and it didn't help Vietnam either. So I, I didn't know how to adjust to that kind of situation. So I smoked marijuana all the time. Uh, but I decided I was going to leave the United States and never come back. And so that entailed going east, you know, towards India and Nepal and something people did in those days. You know, I traveled, left the United States and started meditating in India, learned about meditation, and started meditating in India, meditated in Nepal. And it turns out if you keep going east, you end up where you started. Hmm. So I ended up, I wondered what I could do with you know, support myself. I decided I'd become a college professor, you know, and it turns out meditating, you can, it, it, it allows a kind of self-help. Uh, we mentioned you have this memory, which you haven't, uh, I had not addressed the memories. I, I, I tried to forget the memories. I had these emotions connected to the memory, but when you're meditating, you can, you're, you're taking, you're being aware, you breathe in, breathe out, you know, being aware of your breath, breathe in, breathe out. Okay. The thought comes and you let it go. That's the, that's how you meditate. Okay. Now people say, I can't meditate because the thoughts are coming so rapidly, but that's, that's the nature of the mind. You breathe in, thought comes, let it go. Breathe out, breathe in, thought comes, let it go. So, is a kind of uh, therapy because these traumatic memory come, okay, it's just a memory, I'll let it go. And the, the, the realization that it's just a memory, that's part of the process of recovering. It allows you to think about and reframe the memory. And this 
Uh, writing the heel exercise is the same way. You're writing about your memory, then you write again. And the idea is to create a coherent story, a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. You, you're, you're applying rationality to, to the memory. So the meditation is a kind of self-therapy. Now, with, unless you do it purposefully, it's kind of like firing a dragon missile. You got to do it. You got to follow the steps. Unless you do it purposefully, you may not make progress. So you might need to talk to a therapist or a counselor. That might be necessary. But more than likely, you can use self-help strategies and you can make progress. You can, you can be happier. So we have, we've got this writing to heal exercise. We've got meditation. And then there's cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a pretty extensive. We can't really cover it in this brief time period, but you can read about it online. It involves looking at your own self-talk, talk, and then designing ways of refuting the errors in your self-thinking. So you can, you can be successful. You know, you can be, you can improve your performance over time and you can be happier over time. It's quite possible. I loved how in your book, you and Muhammad write your stories and share your stories. How much of the healing you have experienced has been related to sharing your story versus just writing your own story within yourself? I don't know. Uh, I know that I found the meditation was useful. I uh, began doing a lot of meditation. I've been meditating daily. Uh, but then there were time periods where I was doing week-long meditation retreats. And it's hard because you have these memories coming up and then you you have to process them. But after during a week-long meditation retreat where no one's talking, after about three days, you've worked through it and you stop, stop coming so much, you know, and your mind starts slowing down. So, so that's inherently therapeutic. So meditation itself is therapeutic. Uh, but doing this writing, uh, I was surprised at the things I had remember that I remembered. Like I did remember this business of the rock story and, and part of the successful, uh, uh this writing the heel exercise is to, to develop a kind of coherence. Uh, when I started, the memories were very fragmentary. There were fragments and, and it wasn't possible really to create a different story. And my wife was pointing that out to me too. And Mohammed even was pointing out, you know, your story's not very good. I said, I realize my stories aren't very good. So these stories have acquired, in order to write the book, I have to write a coherent story. So the stories have acquired a linear quality. They have a beginning, a middle, and the end. And then the idea is to make progress, you need to come up with something positive. And so the positive thing that I came up with was the fact that this, these experiences led me to become a meditator. And then when you meditate, there is a realizations, there are realizations about yourself. And those you can forget, you're forgetting yourself. You're focusing just on your breath. Breathe in, breathe out. Now you say, Oh yeah, there's my knees are hurting. Okay. Let it go. You know, breathe in, breathe out. Oh yeah. There's that memory. Let it, you're, you're forgetting yourself and that leads to compassion. So let's, I, here's a lesson from Taoism 101. What's the, what's the meaning? What, what's the, what direction are we going? Simplicity, patience, and compassion. So when you meditate, that's the direction. You don't have, we don't have to have, it doesn't have to be some theologically complex situation. Just a simplicity, meditate, focus on your breath. You know, let's, let's just do it a little bit rather than talking. Talking about it isn't, doesn't really count that much. Let's just practice. Breathe in, breathe out, let yourself relax. You know, breathe in, maybe think about your feet. Feet are relaxing. Breathe out, feet are relaxed. Breathe in, thighs relaxing. You know, legs relaxing. Breathe out. Legs completely relaxed. Now, you can do this yourself. You can give the suggestions to yourself. Breathe in, stomach relaxing. Breathe out, stomach completely relaxed. Okay. Following your breath, breathe in, whole chest. Chest, upper body relaxes. Arms, hands relax. Breathe out, completely relaxed. 
Breathe in, neck, head, shoulders, totally relaxed. Breathe out, deeper and deeper. Become totally relaxed. Now, when you're relaxed, you can give suggestions to yourself. There's something you need to change about yourself. You can do it. You can, you can look inside yourself. You can look at your own thoughts. See what you're thinking about. See what the problem is coming and let it go. Practice letting problems go. And for, practice forgetting about yourself, thinking about other people, praying for them. You can become a happier person. Yeah. In rewriting your story, you also discovered how you increased your ability to have compassion for yourself and others. Yes. Uh, but uh, for some reason, uh, having a goal or, or the, the effort, it seems to me like the progress is made by not doing rather than doing. Okay. But of course, there is the doing is important, though. Uh, figuring out things you can do to help others, that is a very good exercise. Okay. But the talking about it and the, the directionality, it, seem, it seems like with meditating, you're just letting it things be. You know, you're, you're accepting yourself. People are saying, Oh, I can't do it. My mind's going too rapidly. But that's the time when you need to do it. Okay. If your mind's not going rapidly, then it's not so, not so critical to, med to do the meditation. So do, doing something or figuring out some spiritual pathway seems to be the case. And that the, the compassion is definitely the, a product, a, a part of it. Yeah. Definitely. And, and, and a path and a road to happiness. Yes. All three of the methods that you describe in your book help people work with their own thoughts and emotions. Yes. The writing to heal, the meditation, and the cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. And you also went on to become a clinical social worker and worked with people in a psychiatric hospital and helped them with their trauma and probably other conditions as well. Yes, it turned out that I was very good at it, strangely good at it, because people come in with terrible psychosis and terrible addictions and suicidal thoughts, and they're, they're way, way off normality. And I know where I've been way off. <laughs> you know, I've been way off myself. You know, I know what it's like <laughs> to really be outside of normality because that's what I was lived in all this time. So it turned out there was, it, it was impossible for me to think that there's any benefit from these terrible traumatic events. They weren't really all that terrible. There's so many people have had much worse. So many people have, and people who are suffering from psychosis, that is so much they're losing themselves. But, there's the, the 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 thinking is that a you're going to have to accept reality, so you have to accept yourself the way that you are, and b there's there's a pathway. There are things you can do to help yourself. There's a there's a pathway to fixing, and maybe not fixing completely, but to working with the problem. You know, same with relationships. People come and we have family therapy sessions there in the hospital. And some many families are just so very dysfunctional, but the therapist can see. Well, there's things you can do. You know, like maybe you don't shouldn't drink so much alcohol. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, or you know, you're you're getting on your wife's nerves. Maybe <laughs> to change your behavior. You know, your children are misbehaving. Maybe you've got to change something. You know, you got to figure out. Why? What you can do differently, you know? And a lot of times it's not that complex. It's the solution is, you know, on the table. It's just that the person can't see it or it's not so easy to do. If, if it were easy, the person would have done it, you see. so You witnessed a lot of traumatic events and felt that the war was meaningless, pointless, and futile. How do you think you survived that year in Vietnam, and how are you doing now? What we did when we were in Vietnam was count the days till we went home, okay? 
So I remember counting 214 days. (laughs) (laughs) That's awful. (laughs) It's absolutely awful, you know. And then I remember uh, reaching, you know, you get less than 100. That's time for a celebration, you know. And then, you know, 10 days. That's really something. Then I remember getting coming home. And uh, that was the worst of all because I realized I wasn't going to fit in and it wasn't going to work out, <laughs> you know, it wasn't going to work out at all, you know. And uh, so there's that, okay. But the question is what to do about that. So well, the plan was I was going to leave the United States and never come out. But uh, people in foreign countries wouldn't laugh at my jokes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> they, they are different. You know, I'm an American. I'm an American. So you have to realize that's what I am. So I ended up coming back. You know, but I carried this meditation thing with me. So it seemed like I, it was the only tool I had. So I just started using that tool. And it turns out it works. It works over time. And so you can make progress. You have to, you have to apply yourself. And how do you perceive what happened in Vietnam now? How has the story changed for you when you were there to how, where you are now? I went back to Vietnam about uh, seven, eight years ago, and no one, the people I interact with had no memory of the war. They were younger people. And Vietnam has prospered. Uh, but uh, the the men who I worked with while I was there, they were probably sent to re-education camps where many of them perished. The Vietnam experienced a terrible, terrible decade of intense struggle and turmoil. So now they're prospering, but it's still difficult. It's a difficult country. It's, it's not as prosperous as Thailand. So, so they're they're uh, they're prospering. You know, Vietnam is uh, just 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 like China has prospered in the last during, during my lifetime. China, the people of China have experienced incredible prosperity. So the people in Vietnam, they now have a middle class. There's a middle class there. uh, But I wish them the very best. The Nui Kham Mountain that you were on is now a tourist attraction. Yes, it is. And there's a Buddha. They built this big Buddha up there. Uh, I was afraid to go down to the Mekong Delta when I was there because I was afraid it would trigger nightmares. But I didn't have any nightmares while I was there. I got to go. I was in central Vietnam. I went to the jungles there, and it was incredible. The foliage, and the people there told me the war never came. They'd never had a war in that area. The jungles were tense enough that people did not intrude. So that was good for them. How are you doing now with all of your meditation and enough healing that you even went back to Vietnam? I'm focusing on the present now. We here we are in the present. It's unfortunate that we're so silly that we act in silly ways and we're creating these new enemies. But as far as Vietnam, I, uh, you know, if you if you meditate every day and, and keep track and, and improve your life and improve your quality of your performance, you're going to end up a happy person. I can't believe how lucky I am. Look, at, I'm I'm 76 years old, you know, and it's great. I'm having a wonderful retirement. I mean, it's unfortunate. I think back on these guys like Larry Beatty. He lost his life in Vietnam. You know, he didn't get to be. He doesn't have get to, didn't get to have a life. So. It's astonishing. I never thought anything like this would happen. And then I was certainly had my struggles with anxiety and uh, being sad after I came back and stuff like that. But, you know, I can see how I can become even happier than I am now. You know, it's possible. You could go through these self-help programs and become happier. And that's what counts. So, you know, think there's a lot of problems going on in the world today, but it's possible to be happy. Yeah, and you you and Mohammed teamed up and recognized that you both have a background in mental health and you realize that these self-help therapies can help across cultures no matter what religion or spiritual affiliation you identify with. 
And Mohammed is an incredibly skillful therapist. He's a wonderful and a beautiful, he has such a beautiful smile. Uh, but he has a different strategy than I do with regard to therapy. And he lives in a collectivist society. And so he does family therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy on a family level. And when a child has a mental problem, mental disorder, he treats the whole family. He considers it to be a family problem. And so there's a certain curiously curious validity to his way of thinking. But we in America, we're, we have a, we live in an individualistic society. So we'd like to, we kind of think in that direction. Yeah. We think we're individuals, but we really are part of a family and a collective human family across the globe. Yeah. We are individuals and we have our own unique identity. We have our own cultural identity, maybe even spiritual or religious affiliations. Through your experience with Muhammad, both being uh, mental health therapists and professors and collaborating with each other, what have you discovered around, uh, certainly there are those differences, but what have you discovered around the similar similarities we all share around the world? When I, when I came back from Vietnam, I was disgusted with my own country. Okay. Because I saw how flawed we are. And human beings seem to me to be incredibly flawed. Uh, I mean, someone says, okay, let's all get rifles and go shoot these people who we don't even know, you know, like, and everyone says, yeah, that's a good idea, you know. So it seemed stupid, you know. But when I was traveling around the world, I saw the, Different Europeans don't like each other. I mean, the French and the English have these wars and the Turks and the Greeks were, have conflicts and the, the, oh, everyone has struggles and to get along with their neighbors. So that's just part of being human. It would seem we're flawed. Human beings are flawed. Uh, but we, there is this fundamental element of religiosity or recognition of some something beyond ourself which helps us to deal with this you know to deal with this human situation situation that we're in I'm, I'm reminded when i first my first visit to iran i was in like we were, t we were having a conference and there were there was a, a whole room full of Iranian academics and therapists and professional people all interested in science and religion. And there was a small three or four born again Christians and they wanted, and they were hoping to convert someone. And, and so they were kind of butting heads. The Christians and the Muslims were kind of, they couldn't come to any kind of understanding with each other. You know, it's impossible. The Christians say, saying, uh, you can't really make contact with God, unless you go through something that you can understand, you need to have a human being to make, to make it happen, you know. And they're saying, Oh, no, the Quran says, the Muslims are saying, the Quran says God does not beget and he's not begotten, you know. I can't, can't agree. But then uh, someone mentioned the book of Job, which the Muslims have. They, that's part of their, they, they've accepted the Hebrew scriptures, you see. So in the book of Job, Job suffers from all these catastrophes. He loses his family. He loses his prosperity, everything. He loses his health, but he doesn't forsake God, you know. And it's a puzzling story because the, the Iranians were a little bit disturbed because here they have this theocratic government and they they kind of had hoped they would experience a greater prosperity, you know, and it's, it's kind of a problem, you know, that not really, it's not really working out. So they can kind of relate to this Job's catastrophe. He's, he's got some trauma going on, you know? And so we, and I noticed when, when they started discussing that book of Job, the people started looking at each other in the eye, you know, and, recognize we're all humans and we all have this problem of being human and we share it. And that basic humanity unites us. The suffering unites us. Jim, thank you so much for helping unite us today and understanding how we can 
access inner peace. We have inner wars and outer wars. And also thank you to your friend, Muhammad, as well. You both are helping many people. And thank you for having me. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. Hello, I'm Emmy Vadness, and I'm delighted to invite you to join me for my intuitive development, How to Trust Your Inner Knowing class. We'll meet for four Saturdays starting October 28th on Zoom Live Video. There's a special discount for new Thinking Aloud volunteers. I'll personally guide you to connect with your heart, enhance decision-making, and empower yourself. Ready to embark on this transformative journey? Visit emmyvadness.com to learn more and reserve your spot.